HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Heritage End of Year Fund Drive is officially on. Become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to the very final podcast of 2018 for Speaking Broadly. I'm so glad you're here listening because we have an incredible show today. I'm, in, I'm interviewing an extraordinary woman who has completely changed the game in a spirits category that you love. I know you do because I do. I'm here today with Berta Gonzalez Nieves. How did you? Very good. <laughs> um, and we are going to talk about tequila. And it's uh, 12 o'clock in New York, and we're ready to begin drinking, we think, because this tequila of Berta's Casa de Dragones is a sipping tequila. It is clean, citrusy, bright, delicious, and something that you can have as you're having a conversation, as the two of us are here today. So welcome, Berta. Thank you very much, Dana. I'm very excited to be here. I can't wait to learn. That's I today I feel like I'm in a learning position. Often I'm in the drilling position, like I need to know these you know, nine things about your past life. Now I wanna know a lot about tequila. When I think about you, I think about uh, what an ambassador you are for uh, of course, you're the brand that you co-founded in 2008, but launched in 2009. So we're coming up on 10 years. Congratulations. That is amazing. Thank you. Um, but I also think that you are an ambassador for the, the, the agave, the terroir, the notion of tequila as something to appreciate, like a cognac, um, and for the, the country. But I want to go back to your very first ambassadorial role, because... I, I find the roots of the present are so often in the past. Can you talk about um, your that first time when you were working, I believe it was for the, the Japanese, um, and you're talking about all things Mexican. Well, um, I had the fortune to be selected by the Japanese government uh, to participate in a program in Japan in my early 20s. And as part of my training, I had to learn all about you know, Mexico's history and heritage and economy and culture and so on. And I got invited to go to a lot to visit a lot of different industries. And one of one of them was a tequila industry. So I spent three days in Tequila Jalisco. 
really learning about the process and, you know, uh, different producers and so on and so forth. So the second day that I was there, I was, I called my parents and I told them, I know what I want to do. I want to go into the tequila industry. And my parents um, were a little worried. I'm the youngest, <laughs> I'm the youngest of three. And the only woman. And they thought, oh, you know, she, you know. It's been a passing phase. Yeah. And by then I had done some little entrepreneurial ventures. I, I really loved the whole entrepreneurial journey. I am curious because you said you were entrepreneurial from a very young age. Like what were the first things that you did as a young entrepreneur? I did so many different things. Um, I did one that I loved was um, I was tired of going to buy like cards, holiday cards or uh, or birthday cards or whatever cards. And I always found like the most cheesy cards and there was never something that I could actually buy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I thought, well, um, I hired a cartoonist and we designed six cards for for the holidays. Okay, that is adorable. How old are you? And I had you? a friend, I think I was like, probably like 18. Okay. Yeah. And um, and then I had a friend that had a printing house. So they, you know, I they printed them for me and we did this like... Um, counter display for the six garden was like Santa Claus with Ray-Ban glasses, super cool, <laughs> and these goofy reindeer, you know, going down the slopes, uh, very funny. And anyway, so I did that. And uh, that was a great experience. I love that you just had this idea and you went and did it. I went and did it. And that was kind of like the thing when I told my parents about this, they were like, oh, oh. like if she gets into it, like <laughs> there's really no stopping her. <laughs> <laughs> but um. I also had read that you had been drinking tequila for years because it's just on the family table. Yeah. I mean, tequila is really part of the social fabric of Mexico. And um, um, I actually, the first time that I ever drank tequila was with my grandmother. Uh, My grandmother did this open house uh, lunches every Monday. And anyone in the family could come. No one had to reserve or anything. You just had, it would you could just show up. So how many of you are there? Like, is there a big family in Mexico City? Um... It, this is my mom's family side, and we're like, you know, without grandchildren, we're like, you know, 18. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I was always like, I was always seeing them starting lunch with a glass of tequila. So I was always telling my grandmother, when is my turn? When is my turn? When is my turn? <laughs> and finally, one day she, I think she got, you know, so tired of hearing me, when is my turn, that she's like, okay, let's do this now. <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> it's your turn now. And um, and it was always just part of like this like beautiful family ritual. And then from then on in Mexico, we, you know, we celebrate with tequila everything from graduations to marriages to divorces. To, we cry with tequila. We <laughs> celebrate with tequila. We really do everything with tequila. I'm, I'm curious. So you were... Um in Japan, you did the research in Mexico, but then you went back to Japan. What was the Japanese response to the tequila? You know, that was incredible because this program had... Uh, and why uh, did that program exist? It's sponsored by the Japanese government. And uh, the idea is to, they have, it's 300 young people from all over the world. 100 are Japanese and 200 are from different parts of the world. So... Um, what they're doing is they're exposing young Japanese talent to other young leaders from different parts of the world to have a very rich exchange about culture. And for them is really understanding when they're going to go and do business in Mexico or in Uruguay or in Papua New Guinea or wherever they're from all the participants, they understand a little bit better the culture. And, um, and it was truly an incredible opportunity because we had the chance to actually learn from every other culture as well. And um, it was a cruise ship designed by the Mitsubishi. 
specifically. You were on a cruise ship? Yeah, specifically <laughs> for this program. Oh my goodness. And I really had the chance to sell Mexico in a way and tell the story about Mexico in a way and tequila was a big part of that. Right. And the way that people around the world, you know, look at Mexico, they, tequila is part of that picture somehow. And uh, I'm curious if on that cruise ship with all these different countries represented, are, are there things that you remember them that, from then that actually shaped your idea about how to present your country and the things that you cared about? Because you really were around all these people trying to do exactly what you were doing. Maybe some of them did it in a way that was really memorable. I realized that I truly have a very big passion for Mexico. And uh, and really telling the magic of Mexico and this extraordinary, uh, rich culture in every way. I mean, every area of the arts that you explore, every area of geography, of cuisine. Like, there's so many things to say about Mexico that, you know, um, it's great to grow in a country that you are in love with. And then to have the opportunity to produce something that represents the country so much. I thought there was a story to tell about the professionalism, the dedication, the craftsmanship, and the magic of, you know, of tequila. Uh, in right, a but I was just wondering if, if those other people, like the people from Uruguay or from, you know, China, or from, like, if they, the way that they talked about their country and their passion had any sort of lasting influence. I think that trip was a big influence in my life in every way because learning from other people that had the same passion of their countries. Yeah. Um, we thought, I thought when I got that scholarship that the magic was I was going to be able to travel the world. Mm-hmm. And when the trip ended, everyone realized that the magic was all the people. You know, we did go, we went to Hawaii, we went to Japan, we went to a lot of different places. But we realized that those long legs on that ship for 12 days when we were not stopping anywhere, that was where the magic was. The magic was in the people, the magic was in the stories of the people, how they presented their countries, and then also being hosted by one of the most incredible countries in the world, which is Japan. So you realized your deep love of tequila, and as your parents feared, and as you hoped, tequila became your passion, and you had you know pit stops along the way with um, Booz Allen and um, Jose Cuervo or Group Cuervo but Jalisco has been just a huge part of your life I'm so this is where I, I get to learn from you so I've studied a little bit about tequila but what do what do I and everybody who's listening what do we need to know about let's start with the terroir and the agave. So tequila has an appellation of origin, just like champagne or cognac, and you can only harvest agave azul, tequila Weber, in five different states in Mexico. It's Jalisco, Michoacán, Nayarit, uh, Guanajuato, and Tamaulipas, but 80% of the dung designated within the appellation of origin falls in the state of Jalisco. And um, there's 197 different types of agave, and today we are producing five different spirits out of that, agave spirits. So and what are the five spirits? It's tequila, mezcal, uh, raicilla, bacanora, and sotol. And so so um, we're quite familiar here with two of the five um, being tequila and mezcal. Should we be really familiar with the other three? Are they exported? Are they? They are exported in less quantities than uh, than mezcal and tequila, 
But I think if you are an agave spirit lover, um, you should definitely, you know, go out of your way to explore, you know, the magic of the plants. And I think that today um, we are involved in education because we believe that all these appellations of origin truly belong to Mexico. And we're here to give back to the appellation and really like continue to build a platform so that Mexico can continue to produce today five appellations of origin. If we have 197 different types of agave, we should be able to produce to have many more appellations if we create the platform to do so. So the um, the agave plant takes 10 years. Like grapes, they grow every year. You know, they grow, they're picked, the vines die, they come back. Um, so this is such a long process. And how do? And I know that you're very um, determined to make it sustainable. Mm-hmm. So. How does one make a process like that sustainable? Or uh, let's describe the process first, and then how is this sustainable? I think that um, uh, the way that we're that we're approaching it and the conversation that's happening in the category is that the natural resources that we have today will probably won't be the same natural resources that we'll have in 50 years. So the usage of energy and water is something that we're very focused in. Um, so there's... Within the entire process, um, there's a lot of different things that producers do. I can just talk about what we do, uh, just because every distillery and every producer has a different approach, and that's why this category is so interesting and so entertaining. Um, We're using a process to actually, um, that's the most efficient, to extract the juice from the heart of the plant through the injection of steam and water which is the most efficient process in, in that category. So can I, so um, the plant looks like a cactus, but it's actually in the lily family, which I thought was really interesting because those are some tough lilies you got there. But when you do that, do you, you cut the plant to the heart, bring it to this very modern facility, and then you inject the steam into the leaves of the agave plant? So the agave plant, um, first of all, it's, it's one of the most beautiful scene- sceneries that you can have. It actually has a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. So when you're standing in a field, or you know, particularly where we are in Tequila, Jalisco, you have these endless fields of these green and blue, beautiful, really um, incredible plant. In uh, Latin, it means illustrious, admirable, and noble, the ag- agave. Um, so it's really an incredible plant. And uh, it does take, um, depends, it does take on average, you know, uh, seven to eight years to be ready to be harvested. And um, and what you're looking for is that once the plant is, is, is ripe to be able to be harvested, what you're looking for is you're looking for the highest level of sugar reductors in the, in the heart of the plant, which is what then, you know, you translate into, into the juice that we drink today. And... Um, so what we do is once you harvest, um, and if you want to see the harvest visually, you should definitely, you know, you can go to our website if you want, but it's really, a, it's a, the Himadors, the people that work on the fields and um, really are a very important part of the whole process. Um, I wanted to pause there because I know that when you're, you travel a huge amount, um, you live both in New York and Mexico City, but you also travel to spend time with the people who work in the fields. Can you tell me, is there one moment where being with them, you just felt the entire spirit of the business coming together? You know, 
when you are work when you are taking care of a field for so many years, it's you know the way that uh, he mothers have that relationship with the with, with the fields is like it's like family, you know, uh, you know you're. It's like, what does that mean? It means that there's like this connection, this like incredible connection, this hard connection with a field, you know, mm-hmm. like the the time and the effort that you put into taking some in a field eight years. You know, it's uh, seeing it grow, taking care of it, taking care, you know, it's just like it, it, eight years, you have a relationship with like anything. It must be hard to, um, so it's that, but it's that relationship that is so magical. Uh, because in, in the tequila category in difference than other spirits is that the, the front part of the process is so, you know, time, it's, it's a long time. So, um, we particularly work with a family that is, um, um, they're like, you know, around eight generations that have been focused on doing this. And their expertise and knowledge of of the earth and of the plants is really uncomparable. So um, it is, it is. But once you like, actually the field itself, once you harvest, then you have to treat the land to let it, you know, to to. You don't want to overuse the land. You want to make sure that it has the right um, this so, the so right time between a, one is, harvest and another. So, is there another crop that you plant to replenish the land, and then um, do you replant? And then you that? replant, but then it's like you realize that it's like while well, you did cut those agaves, it's like that lot of land is like what's actually producing. So there's a love of the of the land that is a uh, uh, very much part of this whole tradition uh, that is truly grounds you in the inspiration of what it is to produce tequila. And what do you see for the future? I mean, I fear for the future of the planet um, for the obvious reasons, but you are working with the land. Your product is of the land. What do you see in the future and how do you protect it as best you can? And what should everybody who's listening do? Because I feel like we all want to do something. Yeah. Um, I think... um, Every single thing that we do on a daily basis will count for the future. So I think one of the things without going beyond what I do for a daily basis is just like being responsible with everything we do in our consumption, um, you know. Um, but what do you see for your fields for the for the future? For us is, um, um, you know, changes. The agave plant, for example, is a MAC type plant that makes its photosynthesis at nighttime. So the nighttime temperature is really important for the plant, and it's a very Mexican plant that at low temperatures, it doesn't really perform very well. Mm-hmm. So if there's very drastic changes in, in the weather that will affect um, our industry. So that's one thing that um, uh, with all the, cha- the climatic changes, that could be an issue in the future, for example. Um, also, the practices that are... Uh, developed by the Tequila Regulatory Council in terms of the care of the agricultural side of the business is truly important because, like in everything, the challenges that we had 20 years ago are not the same challenges that we have today. So we're constantly trying to stay ahead of the curve to make sure that uh, that we're doing the right thing. And also, when you are within, you know, fields and fields, you, you have neighbors in, in that have other fields, so you have to be very respectful about that. Um, and and how can the neighbors affect each other? Because I know um, 
certainly in uh, crop spraying, for example, it's the effect can be devastating. I mean, if you're an organic farmer and the person next to you is you know, spraying, you're in trouble. Is it a similar? It's very similar. Very similar. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, I don't want to draw this out too long, but I just I want to get the, so the agave gets the, to the um, to your facility, and then what happens? So then you you harvest the agave. And then right there in the fields, you, we cut as close as possible to the heart of the plant. We're a small batch producers, and we're in the business of taste, not really in the business of volume. So um, the closest as possible that we can get to the heart of the plant um, so that we can get, um, you know, uh, the, the, the richest juices out of the plant. And then once we get to the, to the distillery, what we do is we take that heart, we cut it in, in small pieces, and then we actually put it on a conveyor belt where we inject steam and water to extract the, the, the juice from the plant. And then that juice gets um, cooked, fermented, distilled, and, you know, there's other, you know, things that happen along the way. Uh, and you produce a very limited quantity, which is one reason that, um, I mean, it's a really a handcrafted spirit. It's not mass produced. And some of the competitors do things on very large volume. So how much are you producing? So um, we produce our batches that are no larger than 500 cases per batch. Wow. That is so special. And, uh, and we are, we really don't ever really talk about the entire production that we do, but we're in the thousands of cases. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we are in a, in a business where it's all about, we believe that, you know, the spirits industry, particular, what we believe we're doing is that we're in the business of entertaining is the theater, the palette of the theater or the theater of the palette. Mm -hmm. So, um, we believe that the way that the consumer interacts today with categories, particularly with the tequila category, um, people want to get to know the category and we are aspiring to be part of that repertoire. We want to be able to deliver an experience that's very unique, that is complementing the category. So let, let's talk about the ways in which um, chefs, for example, have helped on this journey because you have these beautiful, um, the Hoven, which it's spelled like Joven, all of you people out there, because I, I, which was what I was going to, how I was going to pronounce it until I learned better. Um, so Casa Dragones Hoven, uh, which is served like Eric Repair serves it with this beautiful dessert and other star chefs around the country also um, have been inspired to pair it with their food. How did that come about? So when we started our journey, you know, to produce it, we wanted to produce a true sipping tequila that paired well with food. So we didn't... And did you do that for a reason? We thought that that was something that was, there was an opportunity there. You know, we thought that uh, um, we wanted people to, there's no reason why people should not interact with the tequila category the same way they interact with other, with single malts or with whiskeys and in, with cognacs. And did you get resistance when you first brought this idea? Did people think you were crazy? My favorite type of <laughs> entrepreneur. <laughs> A little bit. You know, it was... 2009, it was one of the hardest recessions in the U.S., and we were coming into the marketplace. We, we, when we came off the gate, we didn't know that where we were going to end up, but the commitment was to, pr the, to produce the best possible product we could bring to the table. 
and um, and to do something truly, truly unique. But I think your price point, which I don't know what you um, started at, but at, at some point you were at two seventy five. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, just casting my mind back to two thousand nine when we were all, you know, in the middle of that crisis. That is so bold. And um, well, we were so excited to bring this product to market that we said we want to come into that category with a strong point of view. And if that strong point of view doesn't succeed, then at least we gave it our best, you know. And um, so once we were going to market uh, and we were going one store at a time, you know, selling our product, people said, oh, you're, you know, probably they thought I was very eloquent, but they were also thinking she doesn't read the paper because it's like the worst recession ever. (laughs) Right. She's very smart, but she's also very dumb. Yes. Because why is she bringing me this very expensive product? Yes. Like all of our, um, right, the big guns. Because I remember talking to Eric Repair during that time, and he had some people who were so faithful to him. Like they just came and spent money there because so many people had fled. And yeah. of course, business came back. But um, you know, the idea of having this extraordinary and you know what it was. Time. It was really all about um, people. I think the chefs are the quintessential entrepreneurs, and when we, when I was presenting to them our product. And sharing with them our passion and what we're trying to do, their doors open. You know, I didn't know if they were going to open or not. And if I were aspiration to convince a French chef or an Italian chef or a Japanese chef to pair, you know, unex- do unexpected pairings with tequila was like a shot in the dark or they were really going to give us a shot. And, um, and I learned really quickly that in a way um, we are, you know, they resonate and connected with the entrepreneurial nature of what we were trying to do and and gave us a chance. And probably also the excellence. I mean, you've always had a pursuit of excellence and the chefs that you have partnered with also are all about the pursuit of excellence. So I'm sure on that level that you're doing something so handcrafted and delicious and also something new for them, right? I mean, every chef, part of that entrepreneurial spirit is that they want to try something new. They they are not going to keep doing the same thing time and time again. They can't. And so as much as they can push their food forward, pushing their um, alcohol spirits forward is also important. And Joven is a blend uh, of a white tequila with a five-year-old extra aged tequila. So it really has these floral and citrus notes of the Blanco tequila balanced with the sweetness and the spice of the extra aged tequila. And it's all about this journey of taste. It's all about the visual characteristics, the aroma, the taste, the finish, that I think um, we want the product to actually seduce the chefs to do um, to do unexpected pairings. So the visuals are a really uh, important part of it. As you know, my husband refused to let me throw out our bottle because the bottle's so beautiful and it has, you know, handwriting on it that had... Frankly, it had my name, not his name, but he still wanted to keep it. And, um, you know, the label and and the care that you've taken to create this very special visual of the bottle and the box that it's in and the crystal top. And um, and you were inspired by something that you saw in a museum. Was that always part of the plan? Like in your heart, you want this very special thing? So we were fully focused on doing our tequila first. And we had no, we wanted no distraction whatsoever. And once we had, you know, our hoven, then that inspired everything else. It truly, once we knew that we had this very special liquid, then we, we thought that inspired the packaging. 
So we were looking for inspiration all over Mexico. We went to every flea market, museums, collections, um, to try and figure out what we wanted it to be based on Mexican design. And there was an exhibit of the history of glass in Mexico in the Museo de Arte Popular, which if you're going to Mexico, that's one place you should miss. And, um, and th th there was like a lot of apothecary bottles there and there was a lot of engraving of Pepita. And that's when, you know, the lights went on. And we thought that we wanted to showcase the craftsmanship we were showcasing in our tequila in our packaging. It made so much sense. And the, the tequila is, um, t the color is taken out so it's clear. Mm -hmm. And so why is it clear? Because some people would say clear like water, clear isn't a point of view. Like why is clear strong? Well, we were aspiring to pair it with food. And we learned that, uh, first of all, we felt that the color and the platinum shine of the product was a better representation of what the product tastes like. But also, we were we were wanting a place on the table, mm -hmm. and we believe that these particular characteristics were giving us more chances than if it would have color. And we're also modern producers, and we're trying to expand the tequila repertoire through innovation. So um, uh, people were saying, well, why would you take the color out? Color is a sign of quality. And we're like, well, we, you know, we want this blend to surprise the palate. We don't want already you to define what the product tastes like. We want the actual taste to actually take you on the journey. I think that's brilliant. I, I find that a very moving notion because, in, in fact, you're saying don't look like with wine. People spend a lot of time talking about his legs, which don't really matter. And they talk about, you know, it's garnet and it may or may not matter. There's things the the look may or may not matter, but if you take it away completely, you really have nothing left except, like, what does this actually taste like? Um, okay, well, we're going to take a really quick break, and we're going to come back and hear how um, Berta Gonzalez built Casa Dragones from a dream to a powerhouse. For the past 10 years, Heritage Radio Network has brought listeners around the world the most important voices in food and drink. I'm Matt Patterson, the lead engineer here at HRN. Six years ago, when I was teaching myself to brew beer out in San Diego, I listened to Heritage Radio shows for tips, tricks, and inspiration. Heritage Radio's programming simply would not be possible without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and give HRN a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. Now is the best time to show your support for HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to the final show of Speaking Broadly for this season. I hope you've really enjoyed it. If you have, I hope you go on um, Apple Podcast and subscribe. Um, you know that you can find lots of interviews with extraordinary women who have really changed their industry and are very open about the challenges and the opportunities um, along the way and that's actually what we're going to talk about on the second half of this show where we've been talking a lot about tequila and I've been learning about tequila because um, though I've drunk some tequila in my time I haven't sipped a lot of it so I'm gonna, you're going to hear some glasses clinking this is radio sound but it's real 
Did you hear that? Um, we're clinking glasses because we're going to have some sips of tequila as we talk. I hope you don't need the sips to talk about your path <laughs> here. But um, you were saying uh, earlier in the show that you're a natural-born entrepreneur. Uh, you had, a, you know, sort of businesses starting at 18. And you were well-trained because you worked at a lot of really interesting places. But when you came to launching your own Business and you had a partner in Bob Pittman who was at MTV and um, AOL and then went off to invest. Uh, I'm wondering what you thought the challenges were going to be because you know you knew so much um, and what they actually turned out to be. Well, um, when I look back, I realize that um, there was a when you're an entrepreneur, there's a mix of Passion, determination, and naivete. You need that last part, don't you? Without that, <laughs> there's no way you're going to do it. <laughs> and What were you most naive about? I think you assume you know things. Mm-hmm. When, when you know, you do, you assume you know things, and then when you have to do them yourself from scratch, you realize that you didn't know as much as you thought you did. And what, were, what, what, what assumptions did I you mean, make? It's not that I it's not that I made any assumptions because very quickly you realize that any single thing that you need to do as an entrepreneur you have to do it. There's no there's like if you need to export by sea, you have to figure out literally how to export by sea, what paperwork you need and what, like every single thing becomes like a you have to see it through to the to the to all the details and um and you're constantly opening doors and opening doors and opening doors and opening doors. So and and by that you mean learning new things or meeting new people learning or? new things and you realize really quickly that all those big ideas that you thought you know you become humble very quickly Do, are you saying that the big ideas become uh unrealizable without like these tiny yeah efforts and, and also you know you have to be humble enough to not assume that you know things so that you know that you're going to be learning every day of the week something new and be quick about it yeah so that you can actually build a business who is your best teacher i mean i've had many uh teachers i think that um founding the company by the side of bob pittman he's a true serial entrepreneur and um and just his determination and belief in me on a you know, regular basis, but and also challenging me, was um, truly an incredible opportunity, and I learned tremendously from him. You know, um, and is that something that you're able to pass on to others? Because I'm sure, having made the market that you've made, many people must come and say, like, "How do I do this?" I, you know, I have had so many people support me on this journey and be very generous with their time and their ideas or their connections or their all the different array of things that you need to build a business that I try my best to go out of my way to do the same for others. When you're learning something completely new, what's your approach to that? I do think that that's, as you said, at the core of entrepreneurship. Doing it well and fast, what's the how do you do that? What's the trick? I think curiosity. I really think that you just have to be very curious and um, and not assume. I think you have to um, 
And then when you're learning how to do something, see it through. You know, I think that that is important in in any business, and that's what I in my company I try to instill that in people. Like if if you see that something needs to get done, please help us do it because there's no one else is going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, like if like your coffee machine is not working well, did you call anyone to help us? You know, <laughs> fix it because there's no one else here to actually do that, and that's something simple. But um, and. You've chosen to have two, well, you started for five years with one product, which I imagine anyone you would talk to about that would say, that's crazy. How did you, I mean, is that true, first of all? Like, were there naysayers? And how in your own mind did you shut down the naysayers, if there were? Or how did you choose to go with one product? Well, first... The first product that we brought to market, which is what we're drinking right now, Casa Dragón es Joven, we put all the focus into one product and we wanted to make sure that we were not distracted with anything else. Um, and we wanted to come with a very strong point of view. So, and quite frankly, we believe in the power of focus. We knew that we couldn't do three things great at the same time. So, Do you think that that's true for most entrepreneurs? I mean, would you recommend that as a strategy? I think that you should manage what you can manage and not try to manage too much. You know, if you try, at least for me, I don't know for anyone else, but I think that if you're going to do one thing, then do it really well. Um, it's, a, it's a risk, you know, because if you, if, you know, it's a risk that you take. But um, we believe that having a laser focus into one product and perfect that product, we only did that for five years, was truly an uphill battle. Um, but, uh, but also, we truly believed in what we're, we're doing. So that came through. Now, you became um, a master distiller. Do you think that is essential? You know, someone who's starting a business, that, the process, I'd love to hear about the process because certainly the master SOM exam uh, is something that is really time-consuming. Uh, people do t to change their lives. Do you think it was essential for what you set out to do? Because really, you, as the lead of the company, really you could have just said, you guys, go do it. Hopefully some women. <laughs> um, um, I have to confess, uh, I, when we finally got to our Hoven, and we're, um, you know, we haven't even started selling it, And uh, my, we are two maestro tequileros at Casa Dragones. And um, Benjamin is my mentor and also my partner. And you brought him out of retirement. I was curious. Does that mean he's like 80 years old? No, he retired young. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and once we had this, he told me, why don't you get your title? And I'm like, I mean, I'm like, I, can't, I don't even have time to call my mom right now. And, and I'm going to go and do this when we're trying to like, Do all these different things, right? To build a business. He's like, just call them and see, you know, if they would take you into consideration. So I called and uh, and they said, yeah, I mean, the people... Um, so what does that mean? That you, that you got to take the test? I just said, like, if I go through the process, are you going to consider me? And Would if you, they possibly not consider you? I don't know, but I, di I didn't want to go through that journey. And you then didn't want to assume that. Yes. That would be <laughs> so... They said, no, 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 yes. And I knew, you know, many of the people there. So I just said, I said, okay. So I, I had already been 12 years in the, in the industry. And for me, um, 
it's more about the 12 years than the actual process of, of getting my title. It was more so the formality of getting my title and uh, and do you think it helped in any way? Do you think that you know it would quiet a naysayer or made you feel more comfortable or um, I I'm so proud to have my title that um, it was more about you know my journey in the category and of you know of Benjamin and I sharing this together we're two maestro tequileros and when we realized when I got my title and we're going to produce our first batch we realized that we have the same initials so it's Benjamin Garcia and Berta Gonzalez so what you see in the signature of the label is BG so we didn't have to fight for that (laughs) (laughs) and we truly share the responsibility and play very different roles within the production of our of our product Um, he is in Tequila Jalisco on 365 days a year um, and uh, and he's a chemical engineer by training. So we bring very different um, uh, characteristics and, and, and background and experience to what we're doing. Are there many women who are master distillers? I think they're, they're more and more. And I think I think what we're seeing what happened in wine is happening in spirits in general. And it's really exciting because I think that um, it's not exclusive. I think it's a, it's a, it's an industry. The spirits in the wine industry, it's all about taste, and uh, whomever brings that to the table, you know, gets a seat on the table. Right, and they get to drink lots of really good tequila. Yes, <laughs> uh, you are an industry in an industry that's really male dominated, and um, I'm just wondering if you think that the industry in Mexico is any different than what we would see. In America, the challenges to a woman in that business. I like being gender blind. It doesn't interest me as a topic in general, but I'm sort of curious in a um, country specific way. So I was so in love with the tequila category that when I got my, when I started my career in the tequila industry, the second day I realized I looked around and was like, oh, there's not a lot of many women here. (laughs) And, um, I don't. Th- I. I wouldn't have said it like I'm saying it today. But the one thing I didn't want that to define me, and I didn't want that to be my challenge either. So I'm first and foremost a professional in the tequila industry, and you know that produces Casa Dragones. And then yes, I am very proud to be a woman. Um, but that I'm leading. We're leading with our profession, you know, and we believe that. Um, that is more important than trying to make manage it from a minority point of view. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that in, in that anymore, and I don't even want that to be my topic. Right. I, it, it, as I said, as a as a as a topic, I think it's um, it's very limited because uh, there's so much you can do just powering through and doing what you believe. And you know, passion is obviously the through line between passion, and excellence, and the specificity. You know, the, your gender is not going to really <laughs> play an enormous role. Um, but I, I didn't know whether. Uh... And yes, of course, you have challenges along the way, but um, you would have them regardless, male or female. You have you'll have challenges. I think uh, I concentrated very much in having um, in preparing myself and um, in making sure that it was more about the topic at hand than right. anything else. Because you like data, apparently. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, so what role does data play in shaping this 
uh, the journey for the tequila? Um, well, it plays a role in everything. It plays a role on understanding your market. It plays a role, I mean, this is just the United States is a large, one of the largest spirits markets in the world. And, um, and understanding the opportunity from, you know, Miami to New York to Dallas to Houston to San Diego to San Francisco, like you really need to understand um, the lay of the land and, that, and follow the numbers, you know, and that's just one area. But in today in any consumer goods business, there's, you know, there's a CRM program and there's, uh, you know, even in your production processes, you of course, you're all data driven. So um, we live in a very exciting time where, you know, data is really providing us, um, enabling us to make hopefully the right uh, conclusions in our business. Is there anything that data has helped you do that you would have never thought of otherwise? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, going back to data, and I'm going to connect it into a different area, which is social media, which is data. Um, we wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting down here if it wouldn't be for that. I mean, we had when we started, um, we celebrated our, the f- production of our f- first batch in July 27, 2009, and Facebook was just out. So we were born with that. And with that access to that and without access to that data, we wouldn't have any other way, any, the more, less about the traditional media, of course, radio is one of the most incredible mediums in the world. But um, as entrepreneurs, social media was not about money was right. about storytelling. And um, and that enabled us to spread, you know, tell our story. And that data changed changed the way that we went to market. And is there have there been stumbles? Like it when I when I think about the intensity of the focus and overcoming at the outset what seems like the most gigantic obstacle, which is high-priced, very special product trying to change people's minds in a, a t- time of a recession, um, you know, and how far you've, how well that went and how far you've come. Uh, have there been stumbles? Is there anything where you think that is something nobody else should do? Let me tell you about that. I think um, in the entrepreneurial journey, you're, current challenge is your biggest challenge. So it's like a ladder, right? So what you did yesterday, you forgot about it already because it's solved and you moved on and you <laughs> learned from it, but you're in a constant solving for opportunity. Less than uh, approaching it from a negative challenge point of view because there's gonna be plenty, is more about getting accustomed. The only constant is change and you need to be agile and, 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 and surround yourself with great people to be able to make the right decisions. But that's the only constant is change and you're solving for the opportunity on a regular basis. So it feels like your current challenge is your biggest challenge. But when I go back, you know, nine years and we were selling, you know, literally counting in bottles because counting in cases was a little depressive. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Every time you are, as an entrepreneur, you feel like you're walking on the edge permanently. You have a different sense of reality. Reality suddenly is in technicolor, it's in 3D, like it's like, it's real, because if you make the wrong decision, it could be a dead end. Right, or you could get cut on that knife. 
to yeah. the heart. So yeah. um, your sense of urgency and your sense of reality just is multiplied. And that brings a level of excitement and um, um, that, you know, you have to like it. Because that's, that's what I was going to say. Like That living on the knife's edge has to be exciting, as you say, rather than terrifying. Um, because... Yeah, it's much easier to recover your balance if it seems like fun than if you're afraid every step. Yeah, and even if you are, you're going to be afraid in some steps, but uh, <laughs> you have to pick yourself up and, you know, and you know, it's that passion that yeah. I, we talked about at the beginning and that determination that take you through, you yeah. know, those moments where you're like um, nervous or terrified or... So... Um, I could go. I'm fascinated about the you know the power of determination, but I'm going to switch topics and um, ask about some places in Mexico City because Mexico City is one of the greatest destinations in the entire world. I was just there a month ago. I got to see you briefly, um, and I've followed this list. But I want to get off the list and I want to go to like where you would hang out with your family that isn't on a list hopefully um what would you recommend where do you recommend people go well i think mexico city is uh and not because i'm i'm biased i accept it before i speak about it i was born in mexico city i grew up in mexico city i went to university there all my family lives there i'm actually going on saturday to celebrate christmas there and um it's one of those cities where there's so many neighborhoods that my recommendation is take a slice of life of that neighborhood. So it's very close from, you know, from New York. So if you're going to be making another trip, rather than trying to cover everything, because it's so large. I mean, it's one of the largest cities in the world. And it has so much to offer that I would do get to know a neighborhood. Okay, so pick a neighborhood and then give me three places to go in that neighborhood that you're like, this would be... You know, you would, in, you would enjoy this as a beginning. So I grew up in a neighborhood called uh, Jardines del Pedregal, which is in the south of the city. And uh, it's, uh, it's an, a whole, you know, neighborhood that was built on top of volcanic rock. So the architecture, uh, one of the first houses built there was by Barragan. And... Um, and it really set the stage for the architecture in that neighborhood. They were trying to attract creative type people there and so on. So um, there's this house there uh, that is owned by Cesar Cervantes, a dear friend of mine. And uh, he has a restaurant there called Tetetlan that I love. It's a neighborhood place. There's a great library. And you'll get a sense for the architecture and you'll get a sense of place of, of the neighborhood. So we may start there for breakfast because they make great breakfast. And um, and then they have a great store there. They, he buys like guaraches from all over the country and he works with different artisans. So it'll be good fun to, to buy a couple of things there. And then I would get on my way to go to UNAM, to the public uh, university with the largest university in Latin America. And I would make sure that I would go to the library. Um, architecturally is extraordinary. And, uh, and there's this uh, piece made by Gabriel Orozco, that's a whale, uh, that I would just go sit in the library and take my time, you know, bring something, just look at the people, look at the students, understand kind of like the, the, the social dynamic of the place, 
Um, it's a it's called Ciudad Universitaria for a reason. It's a, a city in itself because it's very very large. And then there's murals. I would like get a bicycle tour, and I would go and see the different murals that they have because there's incredible murals there that I, I would suggest people would explore. Um, and then I would make myself to go and have lunch right there in the university uh, at uh, Azul, which is an incredible. Uh, incredible, incredible restaurant. Um, and uh, it's right at the heart of the university. It's a Mexican restaurant. And um, um, you will, you know, it's extraordinary place that you shouldn't miss. Perfect. Okay, I have my I have my next trip planned. Um, I, I can go on and on. <laughs> it's, it's funny because... One so, more thing, and the oh, Muac yes. is right there. Mm-hmm. The is, Muac, the museum. Oh, yes. So you have lunch and then you go to the museum. Perfect. We have it. We have... We have a trip planned. Um, and uh, at the end of the show, I always ask my guests to recommend uh, someone to pay it forward. A, a woman in this industry who has inspired you um, and why? Um, there's many women in the industry in, the, in general that have inspired me and championed me and, you know, helped me, you know, or supported me through this journey. Um, I'm gonna think about a Mexican chef as you're in that tour of San Angel I'm gonna send you to dinner to this place her name is Elena Regadas and uh, she has this incredible restaurant called Rosetta in Mexico City and she also makes one of the best bread in the country so I would um, love for you to invite her to your show or go to her restaurant uh, and uh, for those that are listening to us, um, if you go to Mexico City, that's something that I would definitely go out of my way to experience. It's one of the, um, I won't say the few things I missed, I missed many things in many neighborhoods, but of all the things that people came back and said, oh my God, I loved Rosetta. And I, um, it gives me a good reason to go back. And uh, yeah, I'd love to um, talk to her on Speaking Broadly, so if you're listening. <laughs> um, so how can people find um, you, Casa Dragones? So uh, you can find Casa Dragones uh, in casadragones.com. You can follow us on Instagram. It's that same handle. And uh, um, uh, you can write to us through our website. Um, uh, we're dynamic with that. And, uh, and also you can connect with me at my handle in Instagram is Berta Gonzalez N. Um, because in Mexico we use two last names. So um, And you can please message me there. And thank you all for inviting me to this great show. Thanks so much for coming, Berta. You know where to find me. Um, dear listeners, you can find me at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. Um, thanks so much for listening. I hope you have amazing holidays. I want to thank um, Nina and uh, Jeet for helping with this show. Heritage Radio Network is an awesome food network uh we're in the middle of uh, an end of year fundraising drive so if you're inspired go online and donate and no matter what you do come back and listen to speaking broadly again in the new year and until then have a, a great set of holidays happy holidays thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.